restricted sex. Um, you might be thinking, didn't we just talk about contraceptives? Uh, but that's actually not what I mean by protected sex. Uh, when I, what I mean by protected sex is how to protect sex uh, within your marriage. And so what we're talking about basically is preventing adultery. And, you know, th this topic, it seems to kind of be a downer as we're, we're talking about marriage. You know, we're, we're preparing for the, the glory of, of life, you know, living happily ever after. Why would we want to intrude uh, on that with a topic like adultery? And the, the reality is that we're all sinners. And so it can happen. Um, those who say that that will never happen to me. And guess what? Uh, unfortunately, that's who it happens to. You know, I, I know uh, a pastor. Um, actually, I know a few pastors. Um, by uh, one in particular, he had a, a faithful wife uh, who, who faithfully served in the church. Um, but it happened to him. While she was serving in the church, she ended up having an affair with uh, another member in the church, another leader in the church. It, it can happen. And so, you know, if, if while you are single and sexual temptation is strong, what, what do you think happens after you get married and you actually have sex regularly? Uh, there comes to be a, a heightened expectation for it. Uh, but... The issue is, is not sex itself. The problem is the heart. James 1 tells us what happens in sin. Uh, James 1.14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Interesting here how James, he likens uh, sin to giving birth. Um, and, but, uh, you know, this, this is true before and after marriage. It doesn't change after you're married. You're just as much a sinner after marriage as you are before marriage. And so, you know, while, while marriage itself, uh, can be a means of protecting sexual purity, you, you also need to consider how to protect your marriage, uh, as well. Uh, there's a, there was a really helpful book. Um, that I was given before I was married. Um, and I'm going to be referring to it a little bit later. Uh, it's called Hedges, Loving Your Marriage Enough to Protect It by Jerry Jenkins. Uh, that book really opened my eyes. And the, the one thing that really opened my eyes was this. Uh, he talks about how even after you get married, you can still have crushes. Um, very interesting. You know, even if you love your wife, you can still have crushes uh, or your husband on, on other people. And that is how adultery happens. And so you need to be aware. Um, and so the reality is we, we need to talk about this so you, you know how to handle it. And so what we're going to do um, in this session is we're going to look at two passages uh, that talk about protecting your marriage. First, we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians 7. And then we're going to go to Proverbs chapter 5. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. 
if you were with us last time, uh, we went through the majority of this passage and what it had to say about uh, singleness. Uh, today, we're going to focus in on the first six verses. And so um, let's read that together. First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. God bless the reading of his holy word. Uh, let's bow in prayer uh, another time as we approach this text. Oh Lord, we thank you once again for the gift of marriage. As we turn to your word, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us and teach us how to protect that gift, Lord? Um, to the glory of your name we pray, amen. So I've uh, already discussed the historical context of this passage. Um, it's found in verse 1. Paul, he's responding to a question that the Corinthian church asked Paul in a letter concerning sexual relations. And someone was teaching the Corinthians, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So they were teaching some kind of asceticism. And Paul, he gives his response, and we can outline it in four points. There's the situation, the solution, submission, and then a concession. So first we have the situation in verse 2, where Paul says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. That gives us the situation. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Now, it's significant to know that the word temptation... It's actually not in the Greek text, but it's there included by the ESV as an interpretation. A literal translation would be, but because of sexual immoralities, plural, it's in the plural. The word sexual immoralities is porneus, which refers to any sexual conduct outside of marriage. And so it seems to me when you read 1 Corinthians as a whole, the situation wasn't merely the temptation to sexual immorality. Rather, it was that sexual immoralities were already taking place. So you go back to chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. Chapter 6 uh, verse 15, he has to tell them, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So it seems like the Corinthians, they were actually having sex with prostitutes. And then in verse 18, so he has to say, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then, so in chapter seven, uh, when you go to verse five, 
Yeah, it makes sense. He says, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Lack of self-control, it means a failure to control yourself. And so it seems like Paul's saying, look, you guys are already committing sexual immorality here, right? And so that, that's the situation. In spite of this ascetic ideal that they're being taught, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so they use that to justify not sleeping with their wives and husbands. But then the reality is they're, they're going out and then they're sleeping, they're having sex with prostitutes anyway, uh, which was actually readily available uh, at the temple of Artemis in Corinth, right? And so, so Paul is actually being very practical here. He's saying, look, guys, you're, you're already sleeping around. You shouldn't be doing that. So that, that's the situation. And for us today, um, maybe that isn't directly our situation. So maybe it is more, as the ESV translate, there, there is the temptation to sexual immorality. But when I think about it, actually, the unfortunate reality is that most guys I talk to, even in the church, they do lack self-control in the sexual area. They are falling into sexual sin. Some have slept with prostitutes. Some have slept with their girlfriends. There's adultery, right? There's, and there's a problem with pornography. And so actually the situation is, same, is the same in many ways. There are many kinds and forms of sexual immorality present even in our church today. And so what is the solution then? We go to verse two. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, in this verse, Paul is speaking to those who are already married. In verse nine, Paul will speak to those who are unmarried and widows, and he'll say they should get married. Uh, if they lack self-control, right? But here he's speaking to married couples and he's saying, look, because of sexual immorality, you should have regular sex with your own husband and your own wife. Uh, verse three continues. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So what is the solution to sexual immorality? What is it? It's not what you think it is. If you look carefully at verse 3, what is the main verb in verse 3? The main verb in verse 3 is give. And so the, the solution to sexual immorality is not just having sex with your husband and your wife. The solution to sexual immorality is giving. And I think this is very significant, right? Um, the way Paul worded this, because sexual immorality, he doesn't just say men have sex with your wives or wives have sex with your husbands. Uh, you see, in, in some ways, the essence of sexual immorality is selfishness. It is an uncontrollable desire to satisfy yourself. Uh, and especially you think about adultery. Adultery is perhaps 
the most selfish thing you could ever do. You are not thinking about your spouse. And so Paul's solution is to give. What do you give? He says, give to your Give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The, the word for conjugal rights here, it's literally duty. It is marital duty. It, this, this word speaks of a, a payment that is due. And therefore, sex is a marital obligation. Uh, but again, it's important. The, the primary verb is to give. So this is exactly what Jesus said. It's more blessed to give than to receive, Acts 20, 35. And, um, you know, I I would say this is so important for healthy sexual relations within marriage, that it's not about what you get. Rather, it is about what you give. That's the mentality that you need to have. And so we can uh, paraphrase verse three like this. It's not what you owe me. Rather, Paul is talking about what I owe you. Do you see that in the way that he words it, right? It's not you owe me sex. Rather, it's I owe you. It's what you can give over what you can Get And then in uh, verse 4, he elaborates this principle with the concept of submission. So verse 4, he says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So this is continuing the thought in verse 3. But it brings it into the realm of authority now. And it's very interesting here, right? Because even though wives are called to submit to their husbands, it's interesting here, when it comes to sexual relations, husbands are called to submit to submit their bodies to their wives. Um, but wives also are to do the same. And so you, you see here, there is mutual submission. But again, this connects to the idea of giving. The wife does not have authority over her own body. That is, the wife can't do with her body whatever she wants to do with it. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. That is, the husband can't do whatever he wants to do with it. Um, and so sometimes you can see wives, they withhold sex from their spouses as a form of punishment. That would be the exact opposite. And I guess one way you can kind of lightly consider this is a, a husband can say, I suppose my butt belongs to my wife. And the wife can say vice versa. That's kind of essentially what Paul is saying here. And so this, this mutual submission, though, this giving, it, it, it's so important uh, just in general for a marriage relationship. And we saw this before in Ephesians 5 with, with the single-mindedness there, right? That husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, right? So you, what, when you love your wife, you're loving yourself. That's single-mindedness. But this applies also in the act of sex as well where there is no selfishness in the sex, rather there is an attitude of giving, a serving attitude. 
where you're looking not to please yourself, but to please the other. You know, sex is, it's such a unique physical activity um, because there is this physical oneness so that when you give pleasure, you also receive pleasure in a physical way. And, and so in a lot of ways, the, the aim is oneness. Uh, but that oneness is achieved by focusing on the giving instead of the getting. So as you give, you will get, but it's the focus. Your immediate goal is on the giving rather than demanding. And this leads to uh, a fourth point, which is a concession. In verse five, he says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In verse six, he's going to call this a concession rather than a command. And basically he's saying couples should have regular sex with one another except by agreement. This word for agreement, it means mutual consent. Uh, It implies you should talk about this. And in general, it's better to talk about it before rather than during. So you talk about it. Um, the, the word uh, uh, mutual consent here, it, uh, agreement, it, it can even mean harmony. And I, I like that image because you, you think of marriage as a duet then, you know, where, where you're sing, you want to sing in harmony with one another. And what that implies is, there should be this constant and regular communication that leads to mutual agreement. You know, sex is one of those topics that it's kind of taboo to talk about. And, you know, some couples even um, are uncomfortable talking about it. But, but you should learn to talk about sex within your marriage, um, talking about the things that, that please uh, one another and then the things that don't so that there is this harmony this this common understanding and if there are moments when uh, pause is necessary then you can mutually agree on that and so uh, that's what he's talking about there's this this mutual agreement but then notice he says for a limited time so there's a there's a definite end um And the purpose, though, what does he say? It's for the purpose of prayer. So there's a spiritual purpose. So it's very interesting. I think this this connects later in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 33, where he talks about the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. And so very interesting, this connection between prayer and sex here. And, and so Paul is saying, if you got to stop having sex, then I'll give you one reason, prayer. Um, very interesting. If you had to choose between prayer and sex, uh, which would you choose? Prayer is definitely up there. Um, and I would say prayer is better. You want to prioritize your marriage 
to Christ. Um, but then you can even connect prayer to the marriage bed um, by bringing prayer into uh, the marriage bed. And so before you have sex, you can pray and ask that you will be able to mutually bless one another. And then after prayer, uh, give thanks to God for the gift of sex. You know, when, whenever I teach on dating, I, I kind of caution dating couples against like praying with one another and holding hands because it can kind of like uh, fuel uh, these passion desires. But within marriage, that's a great thing. You know, let, let the prayer fuel those desires uh, to make love uh, to one another. But let that be just a shadow um, of the pleasures as you experience that, that are so much more in God. Proverbs 16, 11, it says, at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. And so in that way, even as you're having sex, you can do it prayerfully, thinking that these pleasures are just a taste of the the, the fullness of the pleasures you will experience at the right hand of God when you're in his presence. And so um, Paul, he, he wraps this up by coming back to the issue of sexual temptation. And it's very interesting to me that when you consider Satan in the mix, Satan does not want married couples to have sex. You know, sex is uh, not only, it's not the only one, but it is, one important indicator of the health of a marriage. Regular sex usually goes together with a healthy marriage. Uh, the average frequency, if you're curious, of, uh, of sex within marriage is, is once a week. That's the average. Uh, it's more usually for newlyweds, and it, it kind of differs according to age. and varies from couple to couple, but it's interesting to consider. If, if sex is covenant glue, and Satan wants to destroy marriages, then he will actually try to prevent couples from having sex with one another. And so when you put it in that light, sex becomes a spiritual duty to fight temptation, um, where you, by doing it, you honor God by renewing this covenant that points actually to Christ. And so, uh, that's actually a fitting transition to our next passage, which is Proverbs chapter 5. And so uh, let, let's turn there. Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, many of the Proverbs are addressed as parents writing to their sons. Um, and Proverbs 5 is the eighth paternal appeal, you can call it, where uh, a parent is appealing to their son. And Proverbs 5, the focus is on adultery. And uh, Proverbs 5 is, it's, uh, we're here, wisdom warns against the destructive nature of immorality and promotes the satisfying beauty of faithfulness in the marriage union. If I were to outline Proverbs chapter 5, um, you could divide it into four sections. Uh, there's attention in verses 1 and 2. There's defense in verses 3 to 14. There's offense in verses 15 to 20. And then there's a conclusion in verses 21 to 23. Let's read the passage together and then we'll dig in. Proverbs chapter 5. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. 
incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Shoal. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. God bless the reading of his holy word. Uh, this uh, proverb is just rich with wisdom here uh, in how you can protect your marriage. And um, let's just walk through this uh, four sections. Again, there's attention, defense, offense, and then the conclusion. Uh, the proverb begins with uh, attention. And so uh, it starts, my son be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. So this is a father speaking to a son. Today we can equally apply this to, to women, to daughters as well. And he says, be attentive to my wisdom. And th this is the, the first key to avoiding adultery. Simply pay attention. Sin comes through negligence. The one who commits adultery is the one who thinks they never will. And so he says, be attentive to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding. This word for incline, it literally means to stretch your ear. It, it implies effort. You need to lean in and make sure you're paying attention. So it's not just, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, you lean in 
You pay careful attention. You know, some people say they have to learn the hard way. That is exactly why the Proverbs were written. So you don't have to learn the hard way. You know, it, it's very interesting to consider the Garden of Eden. Um, you know, before Adam and Eve committed the first sin, what was in the middle of the tree? It was uh, the middle of the garden. It was a tree. It was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And here's a question. If Adam and Eve had not eaten of the tree, would they have been able to come to a knowledge of good and evil? And the answer is yes. You see, what, what's so profound about that is it reveals there are two ways to knowledge of good and evil. The first is by trial and error. It's by experience. The second is by faith. If they had not eaten, they would have still learned. They would have come to the knowledge of good and evil, but it would have been through faith in God's word. And so, this is why the Proverbs were written. It's so you can learn wisdom by faith, not the hard way, but by faith, by being attentive to wisdom, by inclining your ear. And so consider these things very carefully. That's what uh, this proverb is, is saying. Listen carefully. Verse two, that you may keep discretion. This word discretion, interesting. It can also mean purpose or plan. So it indicates there's an intentionality here. There's a direction here. So rather than just aimlessly following your emotions, there's a plan. There's a path even we'll see, right? Verse two continues, and your lips may guard knowledge. Interesting. He talks about lips here. You, usually we think knowledge with mind, but he's, he's, he speaks of a lips here. And in the very next verse, we're going to see uh, how the adulteress lips, her lips drip with honey, right? And so um, knowledge, what's the connection between knowledge and lips? What he's saying here is watch your speech. And in particular, he's saying speak truth. And this, this kind of reminds me of uh, the situation with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. You know what I'm talking about in... Uh, Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce Joseph. And how, does, how is Joseph able to resist uh, the seductions of uh, Potiphar's wife? It says this, Genesis 39, 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. and He has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept anything back from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great weakness and sin against God? Joseph is a perfect example of lips guarding knowledge. Okay? He resisted the advance of adultery by speaking truth. And so uh, that's the first step to resisting adultery. It's attention. It's attentiveness to wisdom, understanding, discretion, and knowledge. And um, 
That's the call to basically keep reading the rest of this proverb as that wisdom will be unfolded. So the rest of the proverb, there are two main sections. Uh, in verses 3 to 14, there's, we're given what not to do. This is what we call defense. And then in verses 15, 20, we're given what to do, which we can call offense. And so what are we not to do? This is defense. The proverb turns from lips guarding knowledge to lips dripping honey. Verse 3, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. The, this word forbidden woman, it means an unlawful or unauthorized woman. Basically, it means a woman who's not your wife, who's trying to sleep with you. Um, and it's interesting, you know, this, this woman can be quite aggressive, like Potiphar's wife, but she doesn't necessarily need to be a seductress. All she needs is lips that drip honey. Honey is sweet. And so this is a woman, or it could be a man, um, where their words are sweet. And their speech is smoother than oil. Oil is a metaphor for flattery. And so you can think of the phrase buttering someone up. And so this is how adultery begins. It's very interesting as I've been thinking about this. It's not just the physical attraction. It has to do with words. There's a relational aspect to it. Um, and it's interesting to think about that process. One author shared a story of a friend who understood how adultery begins because this is a story. She, there's this, this lady, this woman, she, she went to another woman's house to drop off a, a package as a favor to someone, but the woman was not home, but the husband was, and you know, they just kind of uh, exchanged a few pleasantries. They, they did some small talk for a few moments, but then the friend noticed that the man was working on a carpentry project um, and commented on his artistry. And so she asked him a few questions about it and then it didn't take long uh, to encourage him to, to spill out for an hour and a half about every aspect of the work. And it was, it was really fun. And at some point in the conversation, the man made the comment. He said, his wife doesn't let him go on and on like that about his hobbies. And that was when his friend, uh, that's when her friend, felt a curious check in her spirit. And as she drove home, she thought with a shudder how she had enjoyed the flattery of being told she was a superior listener. That was a narrow escape. Words are powerful. They can be like honey. They can be smoother than oil. And so pay attention, the father would say, be attentive to wisdom and understand how those things happen. Verse four continues, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Wormwood, it's a woody shrub that refers to a bitter or even a poisonous plant. And so honey turns to poison. Oil turns to a sharp two-edged sword. 
is a blade that you can either stab with or you can strike with. And again, very interesting to consider Potiphar's wife, right? Her speech was so smooth and seductive. But when Joseph refused her, she quickly turned on him. She lied. She had him thrown in prison. But let's say that he did end up sleeping with her. Could he trust her? This makes me think of um, Amnon and Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. Amnon was uh, a son of David. If you know this instance, this is the whole reason why Absalom um, had all these problems with David. But Amnon, he committed fornication with Tamar, who is his uh, half-sister. And as soon as he was done with the fornication, it says 2 Samuel 13, 15, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. How quickly sweet words can turn to poison. See, that's what the father is trying to help you to see here. Verse four, notice how it begins, but in the end. And so the father is trying to have us think through the outcome. What will be the result? What will be the result? Let's say you do sleep with such a person. What will be the result? You know, again, people are often caught in the trap of adultery because they don't think. They don't think through the implications according to wisdom. Rather, they're merely led according to emotion. Verse 5, it says, Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. Verse 6, She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not know it. And so what the Father is having us consider is, where is such a woman heading? The end of verse 6 says, her ways wander. She does not know it. So there's this aimlessness to her life. And she's aimless because she does not ponder the path of life. Paths are very important in Proverbs. It, it's kind of a representation of life itself, but it's the direction you conduct your life. And so Proverbs 2.20 talks about the paths of righteousness. Here it's called the path of life. Notice instead she goes down the path of death, but she doesn't go there intentionally. She just wanders there and she doesn't even realize what she's doing. And so it is with adultery. People don't even realize what they're really doing. They're not thinking it through. They're just being led by blind emotion. Um, The woman may think she's free. She might think she's doing what she wants. But, and this could include an adulterous man as well. But the reality is they're really lost. Uh, one commentator put it this way, lacking external instruction and an inner conscience, she can no longer distinguish between right and wrong. And so without a moral compass to give her direction to true life, she strays to her death. 
And so this is the reality. One who flirts with adultery is, is really lost. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Uh, in verses 7 to 8, it comes back to the father. And he says, Now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. And so it's almost as if the, the father's been speaking to the son and then the son's kind of zoning out, you know, and maybe he's like zoning out in his lustful imagination. So the father's like has to bring him back, wake him up. Okay, listen to me. Okay, just bring it back here. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. And this, this word depart, it comes back to the imagery of a path. Stay on the path of life. And this Reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 7, right? There's a broad way that leads to destruction. There's a narrow way that leads to uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven, right? And so stay on that path. And the way you do it, he says, keep your way far from her. Don't go near the door of her house. So in other words, don't visit her house. And whatever you do, stay as far, as you wait, far away from her as you can. In other words, practically... Do everything you can to avoid a situation where adultery can happen. You know, I think this is one of the challenges of the modern workplace is that you are put in such close proximity and partnership to other men and women. It's difficult to keep your distance. Uh, you know, this is something that Vice President Mike Pence, you know, he uh, was criticized for doing. He would never meet alone with another woman. He would try to keep his distance, and yet he was criticized for that, right? It's, it's very difficult, but this is what the proverb is telling us. It's just practical wisdom. You want to avoid any possibility of adultery happening. Um, and so this is the defensive side of things. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.22 it says, abstain from every form of evil. This can also be translated, abstain from every appearance of evil. And so this is the defensive side. If you avoid the appearance of evil, then logically you will avoid evil itself, right? And so if you take care of how things look, then you will take care of how things are. And so the defensive side is you want to make sure that um, you have all of these protections in place. The book I mentioned before, it's called Hedges. It, it gives five hedges to protect your marriage. And I'll just kind of briefly go over those things. Uh, number one is two's company, three security. So whenever you dine or travel with an unrelated woman, make it a threesome. That just avoids the possibility, right? Uh, number two is be careful with touching. Be careful with touching. All it takes is the brush of an arm or a warm embrace to kindle the flames of an adultery. Um, but, uh, and, and so um, you, you also here want to be uh, not only the physical, but also the, the emotional aspect of it. And so number three is if, you pay a compliment, it's on clothes or hairstyle, not on the person herself or himself. 
so you can comment on a pretty outfit. That's very different, uh, Jerry Jenkins says, from telling a woman that she looks pretty. And so you keep a hedge there from going to that uh, uh, degree. Number four, avoid flirtation or suggestive conversation, even in jest. He says, idle flirting gets people in trouble because the other person may need and want attention so badly. And so those are um, some hedges there. But coming back to the text, uh, in verses 9 to 14, the, the father, he then goes through the, the consequences of adultery. And and basically, you see there are economic consequences, there are social consequences, and there are physical consequences. Adultery will leave no area of your life unaffected. And so, you know, sometimes it's, it's helpful in the moment of temptation simply to go through the consequences, right? So, okay, if I do this, then what? And then what? And then what? You just walk it through. And so for this, if I were to think it through, for this moment of pleasure... I would lose my wife, I would break my family, I would lose my reputation, and therefore I would lose my ministry, and then I will face the judgment of God. Is it worth it? All of a sudden, the honey tastes kind of bitter now, right? And so that's essentially what the father is doing here, is trying to take the son through the consequences um, of what would happen um, for a more extended version of playing out the scenario, I'd recommend an article that first appeared in the New York Times. It's written by a woman who had an affair, and she had also been the victim of one. And she, she talks about, and she's not a believer, but she talks about the bitter consequences and regrets of having an affair. And she says, uh, in an affair, the sex is great. And this is what she says. When you have an affair, you already know you will have passionate sex, the urgency newness and illicit nature of the affair practically guarantee that. But then she continues, what you don't know, or perhaps what you don't allow yourself to think about is that your life will become an unbearable mix of yearning and regret because of it. It will be difficult, if not impossible, to be in any one place with contentment. This is no way for an adult to live. When you're with your lover, you'll be working on your alibi and feeling loathsome. When you're with your spouse, you'll be dying to return to your love nest. When you are at home, everything in your life will look a little bit out of register. The furniture, the food, your refrigerator, your children, your dog. You will be pulled between two poles. One of the obligation and responsibility, the other of pleasure and escape. And the stress of these opposing forces will threaten to split you in two. It's a very insightful read. I, I recommend it to you. It's called A Room Full of Yearning and Regrets by Wendy Plump, A Room Full of Yearning and Regret by Wendy Plump. But that's the defensive side of adultery. And if we stop there, it would be not good uh, because every good defense needs a good offense. And this is where we come to really cultivating uh, the, the marriage. Uh, in verses uh, 15 to 18, there are images of water. Verse 15, it says, drink water. And then there's four sources of water. There's cistern, well, springs, streams of water. What does the water refer to? Uh, commentators will differ on this, but I think the best understanding is that the water refers 
to satisfying sexual desire. So that the thirst is the thirst of sexual desire, which is quenched by water. And then the sources of water refer to any female source of satis sexual satisfaction here. And so the focus though, if you look at it is drink your own, right? So drink from your own cistern, drink from your own well. Cisterns and wells are private versus springs and streams, which are public. And this is interesting to consider, right? Just the effect of adultery is that though it starts private, it almost always comes out and becomes a very public matter. But he's saying, drink your own. Verse 15, interesting. It says, flowing water from your own well. Always tell this to dating couples as well. You know, just be patient. Because once you get married, you can have sex all you want, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's flowing water. It's a deep well. But drink from your own well. Uh, verse 17, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Uh, verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. It's very interesting here to compare the word stranger with wife of your youth. What's the difference? Stranger, wife of your youth. Basically saying the one whom you commit adultery with is actually a stranger. In contrast to the wife of your youth. This refers to the woman you marry at a young age. It's your first wife. It implies there's, there's a bit of history in your relationship. So when you compare the stranger to the wife of your youth, What's the difference? See, the, the stranger may compliment you. It may seem like they understand you, right? But do they really know you better than the wife of your youth? Do they really understand you? Perhaps the reason, the only reason they compliment you is because they don't really know you. And, and then consider this. This is a stranger. What kind of commitment, covenant do you have with her, right? As they say, easy come, easy go. If she will cheat, with you, what will prevent her from cheating on you? And remember, she's a wanderer. There's no principle guiding her. As opposed to the wife of your youth, she's your wife by covenant. That implies a commitment. And remember, she's been with you through all of these years in spite of what she knows of you. Right? And so you think of all the memories. Think of the days at the beginning of the marriage when you were young, your love was tender. Right? Think of all that you've been through. And so verse 18 says to rejoice in her. There's something about memories that are very powerful, I've discovered. And so think about all the memories, all the history that you share with this woman or this man. Nothing and compare with this stranger. Hardly knows you, right? But in verse 18, when it talks about rejoice, in the context, I think he's also speaking sexually. And so the father says, may your fountain be blessed. So notice it's a fountain again. It's a flowing fountain, never-ending stream, right? And in a sense, he's saying, son, God bless your sex life. I wonder how many fathers would actually say that to their children, right? But this is what this father's saying, and it is very important. How does this happen? How is your sex life blessed? It says rejoice in the wife of your youth. Instead of looking around at other women, enjoy the one you already have. And verse 19 continues. 
a lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Now, okay, this, this seems strange, admittedly, right? It's like, what the heck, right? Why are we talking about deers and does now? Um, but in the Bible, uh, um, these animals, animal imagery was often used as evocative and er erotic imagery. So Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 9, it says, My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. And then uh, Song of Solomon 4, 5, Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. It's actually very erotic language. And so um, one commentator on this, he said, I had difficulty in identifying with the culture and imagery. Until on one occasion, high up in Tel Hesse, he was in Israel, I came into close conduct, a contact with mountain goats and observed their bright black eyes, their graceful limbs, and their irresistibly silky hair. So these are sexual images. And then verse 19 continues, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. I'm pretty sure you get what that means. Um, I don't want to make you uncomfortable here, right? But the, the word fill, it means to drench you. So it continues this drinking image of water. It's to find satisfaction in the wife's body and caresses. And verse 19 continues, be intoxicated, always in her love. And so this is saying literally be drunk in her love. This is the only time, this is the only kind of drunkenness that the Bible permits, it's to be drunk in the love of your wife. It, you can translate this as be lost in her love. Um, this, what this really is, is it's a license for passionate sex. And so this is the epitome of eros love, where the inhibitions of reason are abandoned in the freedom of sensual pleasure. So in other words, he's saying, let yourself go, have passionate sex. And um, but aside from that, I think it's really interesting that uh, he compares the love and marriage to wine. And when you think about it that way, you know, because you think about wine, it gets better the older it gets, right? And if you consider marriage and love within marriage, within wine, then it, you think about it that way. If it's properly tended, then it gets better with age, as they say. Um, so something interesting to think about. Um, but this also holds true about sex itself. The longer you're married, the sex can actually get better uh, with one partner through a lifetime. Uh, verse 20 then asks, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Basically saying after you consider all these things, it's insane to go to an adulteress, right? It just doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Uh, the proverb concludes on a very interesting note. It, it goes from all these practical words of wisdom, and then it turns theological, turning your thoughts to the Lord. Verse 21, for man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. This is the most important consideration. What you do in secret is public to the Lord. He sees it all. 
He ponders all your paths, right? This word pondering means evaluating or judging. So this is so important, right? Just to know your marriage, that includes your sex life, is before God and nothing is hidden from him. And God, being the author of marriage and sex, like the, the father in Proverbs 5, he wants you to have a great sex life in the context of your marriage. And so, you know, for believers, this should give us the thought that God is always watching us, not a fear of condemnation, but rather a pursuit of commendation, right? We want to hear God say, well done. This may be a strange thought, you know, but since God is the author of marriage and, and sex, right? When we obey what he says about sex, he says, well done. So this may be a strange thought, but, but when, you're, when you're done with making love to your husband or wife, right? You want to you wanna hear God's voice saying, well done. And that, that's what it is, right? That you, you, you glorify God with your sex. And, you know, just one other thing on this note, it's interesting to me when you go to verse 14, where it says, I am at the brink of utter ruin. And, uh, you know, just thinking, just that word brink, I think that the point of all of that is when you, if someone has fallen into the sin of adultery, it's the brink, it's not the end, because there is always grace with our Lord. Right? And remember, we're going through the book of Hosea. That's what it's all about. We're all adulterers at heart. We've all sinned against the Lord. And yet in his magnificent love, he's found a way to not only forgive us, but to redeem us and to bring us back into relationship with him with nothing ever separating us from the love of Christ. So that's really what's most important is your relationship with the Lord. Just a good principle, the one who loves the Lord most will love their spouse best, right? And so when it comes down to it, it's protecting your marriage is very simple. Just always prioritize your relationship with the Lord. When you love the Lord, you will love your spouse. That's really what it comes down to. The great love of Christ will just can't help but overflow to your spouse. So I hope that's helpful to you. Um, Let's close now in a, in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord God, we are so grateful once again for your word that restores the gift of sex from the dirty thing the world makes it into something that is so beautiful, so pure, such a reflection of the joy even that we have in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here as they are married or pursuing marriage. Um, oh, God, that you would bless their sex life, either now or in the future, in a way that it would bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.